0: While everyone rightfully laments the year 2020 as a disaster it was, I'm going to take a different approach. In this last show of the calendar year, I'm sharing how I learned so much more about the game that I may yet reach a point where I have a clue what I'm doing, even 50% of the time. Here's what happened. In early November of 2019, I left the minor organization where I was creating a development program. Old news. I contacted a bunch of junior clubs to see if anyone needed assistance. One did get back to me, and we agreed I could be the sort of eye in the sky at games. That was fine. But I'm the kind of hockey person who needs to know what I'm working with, so I chose to attend every one of the team's practices to get a handle on what they were doing and how they were doing it. My reasoning was this. It would be difficult for me to assist from the stands without knowing even a little about what the players were being shown. I lasted two months till mid-January of this year. It was not a positive experience for a litany of reasons. The team and I disagreed on a few fronts, which led to a mutual agreement for me to step away. It just wasn't worth my time anymore. In all my decades of coaching, I've only had perhaps... Three or four difficult experiences. This was one of them. Oh well. I'm Richard Burkison, and this is Grassroots the Minor Hockey Podcast, with the final show of 2020. Meanwhile, I was continuing to conduct high-performance field evaluations, as I've done for years in Ottawa, and in my newest digs in the OHF. One coach I evaluated in February happened to be on the board of the local Girls Hockey Association. On the night of our debrief, the conversation veered into a discussion about development. It seemed we were very much kindred spirits on what needs to be done in the game. He shared with me that the association could use a fresh look, especially at the elite levels. We talked for so long that the rink attendants finally had to usher us out at 11 o'clock. Full disclosure, my daughter played minor hockey, but as I was only involved for one season as an assistant. As a high school phys ed teacher, I did have some co-ed classes, but certainly not enough to qualify me on how to coach girls. In short, I was not, as we might say in French, au courant, informed. Nobody had to tell me the girls were different. But just how different, and how girls hockey runs, became my entire learning curve beginning last summer. I'll return to girls hockey shortly. I started this podcast in early March. It had been nagging at me for a while to pick up where the TSN Ottawa grassroots had left off nearly two years earlier. My colleague on that show, Greg Kennedy, would always be a frequent guest on the new grassroots. He's got a great talk show personality and is intimately knowledgeable about the minor hockey world. The show we did early on about coach selection remains one of the three most listened to shows I've had. Then came COVID. I decided that even with the hockey world and everything else shut down, I'd continue the show. It was a good personal distraction, but there was also this. Minus the distractions of playoffs, spring tryouts, or spring hockey, I could tackle a great many issues. And away I went. In February, The UHF assigned me to do the high-performance field evaluation for a girls' team coach, the second one that season, and the fourth I'd done in three seasons, all coincidentally in the same association. These coaches were very strong indeed, certainly as good as any of the coaches I've seen on the boys' side. What struck me was the atmosphere around those teams, even at their elite levels, was positive, and didn't seem to have clouds of angst and pressure. The boys hockey environment seems to be forever engulfed in. I have to admit too, I was taken aback by the girls high skill level and intensity. Obviously the lack of body checking changes a lot. A boys coach once told me that girls hockey was a shadow of boys hockey, that without the element of body checking, girls could get away with so much more in games. At its base level, I suppose that's true, which made me wonder what he thought of the approximately 75% of hockey players in Canada playing without body checking. In more recent years, I'd ask him if he plays old-timers hockey, which has no body checking and precious little contact, and how much he's getting away with there. So, while COVID reigned over us through the spring and summer, I cobbled together a list of guests for this podcast, which would intentionally leave out major executive types and professionals. Why? Well, branch and association people just will not stray from the party line in a public forum like a podcast or newspaper interview. If there was a Howard Stern type person doing a minor hockey show, one wouldn't get much there either. And criticize them and what they're doing or not doing? Easy to do. Would they come on the show to debate? Not bloody likely. As for professionals, they just don't know the real world of minor hockey. Probably never did, and if they were in minor hockey, it was invariably at the elite triple-A level only. It's damn tough, bordering on impossible, to find someone coaching professionally who spent significant time with house league or lower-level younger competitive teams. Mind you, having been to a great many coaching conferences and having taught at a bunch myself, I like listening to professionals talk about what they do, how they do it, and why. I just don't see very much of it being applicable to the grassroots world. Full disclosure. Early last summer, I did actually try to land a big fish, so to speak. Mike Babcock. Like me, he was a McGill grad, and when he was playing there, I was an assistant coach at Concordia University. We've never met, but we have some mutual acquaintances. I figured it was worth a try to get him through to get to him uh, through a McGill contact. My plan was to get him on the show, not to discuss the Maple Leafs or life in the NHL or examine his resume. That's not interesting. What would have been interesting would have been a deeper talk about the nature of coaching, goal setting, communication with players, how he approaches practice planning, and that kind of stuff. He declined. He saw it as an interview that, as he wrote to our mutual contact, he wouldn't do until he was back in the coaching fold. I got over the rejection. It turns out that the fellow whose high-performance evaluation I was doing also sat on his association's board as the development guy. During the debrief portion of the evening, we talked at length about programming, coach education, and development. Evidently, that planted the seeds for the association hiring me to create a high performance and development program. This is where I am now. COVID and government edicts may be keeping us off the ice, but the planning for next season is going full bore. In the four months I spent in the rink watching dozens of practices and so-called games, I clambered up that learning curve. I'm still in love with the game with watching coaches creatively seek solutions under trying circumstances like COVID restrictions, with observing skills and tactics and wondering how I'd tackle them if I were the coach, with teaching things coaches haven't seen before and challenging them to try new approaches, and with just watching kids enjoying being on the ice. Yes, the girls' game is vastly different, not better than the boys' game, not worse, different almost, shall I say, purer. The older ones don't have the strength and size of the boys, yet they're more than capable of making the same kinds of plays. To give some perspective, boys' teams spent uh, a lot of time teaching one-timers, Ovechkin style. The boys struggle with it because the technical components are tough to master. Still, boys' coaches insist on 10- or 11-year-olds doing it on power plays from where Ovechkin would shoot. And it's really tough to convince coaches that there will be a time for this, just not now. On the girls' side, coaches teach the skill. I saw one guy do it for about 12 minutes in a practice, dishing girls soft passes as they worked on their timing, something he's done before. They were getting better just in that one drill. There was no insistence on speed or hammering the puck or adding elements like following the shot to the net. All they did was work on timing and foot positioning. In girls hockey, teaching technical pieces seems to function so much better. They're more patient and willing to listen, as the coaches are patient with them and know this instinctively. What the approach lacks at times, especially at the competitive level, is an expectation of doing things faster and with resistance. I've sometimes gotten the impression coaches are a little reluctant to push the girls and I use the word push loosely but so far working in this new hockey culture has been revealing edifying and enjoyable except for one wee issue tampering in Ontario girls hockey coaches and associations tampering with players and other organizations is rampant common and and almost expected. By definition, tampering means interfering to cause damage. The result of it is where the real damage is done. Unlike the boys' side where residency determines where you will play at the elite levels, in girls' hockey, there are no such borders. If a girl is at the highest level, AA, she can go anywhere she wants. It's a bit of a libertarian approach. The Ontario Women's Hockey Association, the OW, fully supports Open Borders, and its CEO, Fran Ryder, said as much on this very podcast, episode 24. My eight-minute conversation with her about this issue begins at the 26-minute mark of the podcast. It's worth listening to again. As I mentioned on that show Perhaps when girls hockey was in its infancy 40 years ago, it made sense, as there were so few centers with anything more than a few dozen girls playing. That was then. This is now. One could argue, I suppose, that open borders forces associations to have strong programming and coaching, lest their players take off for those greener pastures. Nice thought, but it doesn't happen. Here's what does happen. Unscrupulous organizations or coaches approach players in October or November, October or November, about leaving where they are and going to a rival team. How are the approaches accomplished? Through schools girls attend, through social media, texts, phone calls, a friend's parent, etc. The Hockey Canada OHF and OW rule states clearly that any contact, directly or indirectly, is tampering. Fran Ryder added in the podcast that a coach is expected to ask another coach for permission to talk to a girl about leaving. In other words, the pillager is to ask the pillagee if they want to be pillaged. On the boy's side, while similar methods may be used, It's really difficult to bring a boy from another team without his being cut at tryouts. Or magically cutting himself. The residency rules throw up roadblocks. Parents have used so-called legal separations from spouses or having a child live with a relative in another association to circumvent it. It occasionally succeeds. The legal hoop-jumping, though, is likely not worth the time, money, and homework for most. With no residency rules to restrict movement, girls can and do bolt for other teams. They've been offered reduced fees, captaincies, spots on spring or summer travel teams, automatic entry into so-called big-time scouting tournaments, and the opportunity, as coaches market it, to play with the best because that will get them where they plan to go, university hockey in the U.S. or here. One fellow told me that a girl he knew was offered a playing fee reduction to a fraction of the normal one. Everybody does it, or most anyway, so coaches with longer scouting tentacles and better marketing skills win the day. It has little to do with their coaching ability nor the program they run. I use the word program here really loosely. Stealing players from other teams to artificially create a stronger team isn't a program at all. It's theft. And it works. This next part is hilarious. The word commit is used by players who bolt, as in they've committed to go to Team X. They've quote-unquote promised the pillaging coach they will go. In their words, they've made a commitment to that team, even though they've not been given a release, which is what is supposed to happen, but has just become an accepted reality. When I first heard of this, my reaction was this. How can you commit or promise to leave your current team when the very request or approach was illegal? That so-called commitment is not binding in any way. One person said recently that breaking that promise and instead staying put would send a negative message about the player or parent. Really? You think a college program is going to put any stock in a kid choosing to change her mind about telling her team in midseason she was leaving and, and instead deciding to stay put? Is this what we're encouraging in minor hockey? Parents of 14 or 15 year olds now need to weigh ethical decisions about staying with their community teams or not. What message are we sending? Imagine this you're the coach of a team whose best one or two players have agreed, committed, promised, To be the object of the theft. It is November, maybe even earlier. You have three or four months of hockey to go. How do you treat those girls? Do you continue to give them the same ice time? What's it doing to the team dynamic? What's it going to be like in the room? Can you look at their parents the same way? Now imagine that this coach is taking the same group next season. Creates some issues, doesn't it? The defense, I've been told, is that, well, everyone is doing it. That's not true, but it's also well beside the point. It reeks. Pick your adjective. It's a detestable, unethical practice. Which brings up the question of what to do about it. The obvious answer is to change the OW rule. However, as one former branch executive advised it will continue so long as no one is held accountable for the tampering. In other words, charged. Even if a tampering charge is deemed to be without merit, the fact that an association is prepared to protect its players and level the charge could become a deterrent. In other words, stay away from our players during the season, or we will do something about it. Meanwhile, In COVID news, until lockdowns occurred, coaches were handed about as good an opportunity to teach skills and stay clear of overdone and mostly extraneous tactics as one could hope for. This was especially true in regions where they could only have about 10 on the ice and thankfully practically no parents hovering over to watch. When you've got a small group on a full sheet and only one assistant, you really need to be creative with your choice of activities. And you need to have a strong handle on how and what to teach. You can't get away anymore with silly regroup stuff where you're just blowing a whistle for the next wave to go. The biggest challenge has been finding ways to keep kids motivated with no games or tournaments looming. They can get bored from just practicing, which is where fun games, low organization games, small area games come in. I suggested to one coach that teaching positions with such small groups of younger children wasn't necessary. He'd be better off spending half the session doing fun stuff. Because kids learn through play. It's often a good idea to step away from formal instruction, called deliberate practice, and just let them, well, play. Now it's the Christmas New Year's break with a full lockdown staring us in the face. Hockey is on hold, but development planning and teaching coaches aren't. Grassroots will begin the new year with more interesting discussions about what's going on in the minor hockey world. If you have thoughts about the show, the email address is richard at com. Have a great new year. Onward to 2021.